0: Good morning, friends. My name is Colin Saxton, and it's lovely to be with you today. I really appreciate the invitation to join you. Uh, I'm a member of North Valley Friends, which is in Oregon, and so my sleep is a little bit off this morning, so I apologize if I doze off during this next little bit, but (laughs) at least we'll have something in common then. Actually, I'm not going to do a Bible message as much as a story this morning. I want to invite you to be a part of the story. So some of you know that for years I was General Secretary of Friends United Meeting, and one of the joys of that work was being able to travel to the Middle East and visit the work in Ramallah. The first time I went to Ramallah, a couple of us uh, took a group of friends with us, to see what we could learn about the enduring conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And so we visited Palestinian villages, we visited Israeli settlements, we talked to justice workers and peace workers about the work that they were doing. And I came away so inspired and humbled by their endurance and their perseverance and their commitment to work in an area where it seems like there are no easy answers and continuing challenges. Um, along the way, during that couple weeks we were there, we went to some of the places that you read about in the Bible, holy places, to stop and visit and see what we could learn. And one of those places we went to was the Sea of Galilee. And um, we went out on a boat, and as, as if on cue, the wind came up and the waves got choppy, it was so weird. I don't know if that was a gift from Mother Nature or whether Disney has now a controlling interest in, in the sea, but it really led to a much more memorable event. Afterward, we got off the boat and we took some time and we walked along the shore and we spent time by ourselves and we prayed and thought about all that we were learning. And that's the place I want to take you back to this morning is the shoreline of the sea. So if you close your eyes for a moment and imagine yourself there at the lake, we just had an invitation to breathe in and breathe out and imagine the waves centering us. But if you close your eyes, maybe you'll feel the breeze against your face and the sun, the hot sun warming your arms. And if you listen closely, you may hear the sound of those waves lapping against the rocky shore. And there's a bird circling overhead and it's calling to its mate. And if we're quiet, if we're really quiet, maybe we can slip past the silence to that place of stillness and even hear the voice of God this morning. So the path to the shoreline is rocky and it's uneven. And right away we find that we're not alone. Crowds gathering. That Nazarene rabbi that everybody is talking about is going to be speaking in a few moments. Everywhere he goes, large numbers of people gather. There's something about his message and his life that stirs us and scares the bejeebies out of us at the same time. His words are like a fire. They draw us in, but they threaten to ignite us and consume us at the same time. There's something about his life and his message. There's something in his eyes that make us feel alive. He comforts the disturbed, and he disturbs the comfortable, and he manages to do both to those of us who are some of each, which I think is probably all of us, a little bit too comfortable and a little bit too disturbed. Today the crowd is so large that we're pushing in upon Jesus and we're, we're backing him into the water. And it's hard to hear. Those of us who are regular sized are standing behind some of those abnormally large people and it's really hard to see him. And they're noisy. Jesus cares about the little ones. And so he, he, he seems to pay attention and notice our frustration. And so he calls to a local fisherman named Simon. And asks him to take them out, take him out onto his boat beyond the shoreline. And now his voice carries, and we can see him. And Jesus has created, created an amphitheater out of thin air, as his voice carries across the water. Of all the characters in the Bible, the one that I love the most is the crowd. They're not the main characters They're not the names we know. They're not the people who are on center stage. But the crowd is actually really crucial to the story. We learn so much about what God is doing by watching the crowd, gauging their reaction to Jesus, sensing their fear, their apathy, their eagerness, their selfishness, their openness. In the crowd, we see people just like us going about their everyday, ordinary lives When the presence of God shows up and interrupts their regularly scheduled program, how will they respond? How will we respond? How will it change them or change us? It's the question crowd members get to ask and answer every day of their lives because that's precisely when Jesus shows up, when God shows up, when the Spirit is speaking every moment of our lives. It's interesting to me that Jesus leads the people down to the water's edge that day because the water is a place of baptism, a place of time, or a time and place of decision. Baptism, in its original meaning, is about being initiated into a new way of being, a new way of life, and into a new community. Along with being a moment in time, baptism implies this ongoing sense of immersion into the God life. And that day at the lake was an opportunity for this to occur, just like this is a moment. Standing here on the shoreline, well, that's a really fine thing. It's a really nice thing. It's a safe and easy thing to do. Among the crowd, I can listen, I can even listen deeply. But I can do so without cost, without standing out, without having to commit, to choose or to act. On the shoreline, I get to stay in control. Now, we don't know what Jesus said that day. Nobody bothered to write it down or mention it. I think maybe it's because the real message happens next. For at the end of that message, he turns to Simon and says, Put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. And here's where the story gets particularly interesting. Simon, of course, is an expert fisherman. Despite the fact that they'd been out the whole night before and they hadn't caught a thing, that happens sometimes. Now, why Jesus wants him to try again at that moment is not particularly clear. But then again, Jesus often asks people to do things which initially make no sense. And when he shows up in someone's life, he's usually more surprising and disruptive than we imagine. Right? Jesus is more surprising and disruptive than we imagine. Now in Luke's version of the gospel, the story is set a little bit later than in Matthew and Mark's. There's an assumption here in in this text that Simon knows Jesus a bit. He's heard him. He's made motions toward following him. In the story, he's responded positively to Jesus by taking him out on his boat to move from the safety of the shore to the shallow water. And so on some level, Simon is a convinced friend of Jesus, of this rabbi, aware that he has encountered someone who has the possibility, or who's worth following. Simon shows faith, that is trust in action, by willing to say yes to his leading. To his call. For God's sake, he let him borrow his boat. Who does that? Unless they trust somebody, right? So he says, Jesus says to him, put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. And I wonder, thinking about Simon, whether this was just a little bit annoying to him. (laughs) Right? What does Jesus know about fishing? Or nets? And on top of that, Simon's tired. They've been up all night. He and his brother had fished those waters. And there's people who are watching. What if they fail again? What if they don't catch anything? How will that look? Couldn't this little fishing expedition wait until everyone had gone home? But what does Simon say? Despite his tiredness, despite his reluctance, Simon says, because you say so, I will. Because you say so, I will. It's a beautiful statement of faith, right? Because faith is responding to divine leading. Faith is saying yes to God. Much more than it is anything about what we say we believe, it's about what we do. And the story has a happy ending, right? Because every Bible story has to have a happy ending. That's the deal, I'm sure of it. Well, Let's read what it says. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled the partners in the boats near them to come and help. And they came and they filled both boats so full that the boats began to sink. When Simon saw this, he got got all anxious and upset. And he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, and they left them and followed him. Kind of a good news, bad news story, don't you think? <laughs> you can imagine the conversation when Simon gets home. He puts his Coleman cooler up on the counter, and his spouse said, "How'd it go?" We had the most amazing day. We caught way more than our limit. Really, what's the bad news? Well, (laughs) our nets are ruined. The boat nearly sank. Kind of had a nervous breakdown. And I've left everything on the shore to go on a two year missionary trip with a Nazarene. What's for dinner? This is a transforming moment in Simon's life when a simple sermon by the lake becomes a life altering encounter with the Word made flesh. It's a moment in time, it's a day of visitation when that often fearful fisherman Simon takes one more step to becoming Peter or the rock, the Petron. That's what the Greek word is to become Peter the rock. It's what Noah talked about last night. That that stone that has something within it that's meant to be shaped into a whole new fashion is actually being transformed from this rock the size of a heart to, to this beautiful bird. That's what's going on here. A stone that Jesus said he's going to begin to build this new community upon. Of people gathered to do God's will on the earth. Who are going to continue the surprising and disruptive work of... Con- Comforting the disturbed and disturbing the comfortable. Well, there's a whole lifetime of work ahead of it, of this work ahead in Simon's life. To use the language of Margaret Fell's letter, Simon remains a convinced but not yet crucified friend. But today, he's making a move from the shore to the shallows to deep water in this journey from convincement to crucifixion. You see, when we're in over our heads, at least when God's calling us to be there, we're no longer in control. All of Simon's skills, all of his experience, all of his expertise are, at limited, are of limited use. He's at the end of his resources. If he's going to survive, if he, let alone thrive in his life with God, he's going to need to rely on wisdom and power that's beyond him. Early in the story, Simon gets to look good. He gets to show off his prized possessions, his boat and his nets. He was alongside Jesus in his floating pulpit, able to demonstrate just how capable and faithful he was. And best of all, he got to be noticed by everybody. They got to see him be with Jesus. His glittering image of himself as this faithful fisherman, a capable person. A faithful friend, somebody who's unique from that, those crowd people. He got to have all of that. But it's clear in the story that Jesus wants something more from Peter. He's not, he's, he's not content with him being convinced. He wants him to be crucified. It's the same sensibility that's woven all throughout Margaret Fell's letter. Friends, which I've been trying to read as many days as I could for the last couple months. It's been part of my spiritual practice to read that letter each day as I think about you and the work that you are being called to, the important work that you are being called to as New England Yearly Meeting. Convinced? That's a nice thing. That's a fine thing. But what about crucified? if this movement of Quakers is going to have life and vitality, if the children of light are going to shine and shake the land for miles around, then by God and through God, we need to move from convincement to crucifixion. Mm -hmm. And Margaret Fell suggests that it's then we'll authentically be able to provoke one another and a watching world towards love. And with Peter, it all started by him being able, or by his response of saying, because you say so, I will. And all it cost him was everything. His career, his most valued possessions, his time, his identity, it all gets transformed here. In the move from the safety of the shore and the calm of the shallows to that lack of an uncertainty or lack of certainty in the deep water. But the great thing is, Peter experiences the power of God and the miracle firsthand in deep water. On the shore, we only get to hear about it secondhand. That is, if we're even willing to linger to find out what happened. The shore is a place of listening, but deep water is the place of of obedience. And the place where we see the power of God in its greatest glory and beauty. Finally, you notice in the story that as Peter responds, it not only turns out to be transformative for him, it makes a difference in the lives of other people too. Remember at the end of the passage it says, so they pulled up their their boats on the shore and left everything and followed him. The obedience of one person can infect and inspire others to do the same and help create a community of belonging, of that shared experience of God. So as we move back into a time of worship, as a community of busy Quaker people who care so passionately about the world and all of its hurts, and some of you have worked all night long and you're tired, and you're discouraged. And it's felt a lot, maybe, like it's been a long time since we felt like our work has made a a tremendous difference in the world, where our nets feel like they've been stretched in a healthy way. Maybe today is a day for a new baptism, a deeper immersion into the life of God, that doesn't depend on our, our efforts, on our history, on our anxiety to somehow make a difference in the world, to be noticed, but rather to simply say yes to God and find out where we're led. So as we move into the silence today, I want to encourage you to think about where you stand here on the lake shore. Are you part of the crowd, sort of annoyed by those tall people who are noisy? Are you standing on the shore, trying to deeply listen, feeling good, eager to hear? Or maybe you're out on Peter's boat, happy to be of service, and still quietly wondering, is this all there is? Or are you hearing a voice calling you into deep water? into deep water and what will you say